Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast. I'm a researcher and oceanographer, to be more specific, and on this podcast I have long, casual conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way, whether it's uh, directly scientifically relevant or, uh, well, I'm working on expanding my possible pool of guests into the future, but all I mean is the label climate scientists. Uh, I don't mean that to be super prescriptive or limiting. It just gives you an idea of the kind of guests I have. So this week, I talked with Professor Mike Meredith. Mike Meredith is an oceanographer at the British Antarctic Survey. He leads the polar oceans team there, and he's been there for many years. We talk about his pathway through science, how he ended up where he ended up now. Uh, We talk about writing and writing proposals and papers and creativity and the sorts of things that uh, I typically like to bring up on these podcasts. So yeah, let's get to that quickly. I won't, uh, I won't ramble too much here at the beginning. I've been trying that rambling style introduction of the last couple. I like it okay, but you know, for this one, I think let's just get into it. A couple of announcements up top. Uh, it looks like we will probably take a hiatus Um, If you're in the UK, you know that the Easter break season is coming up soon, and in the UK, the Easter break season is actually a good couple weeks long. It's kind of uh, just about to get started here. So uh, up to this point, I've been able to release a podcast about every couple of weeks, you know, roughly on that schedule, uh, give or take a day or two here or there. But it might be more like a month. It might be kind of mid April before I get the uh, next episode up. Um, I had, did record some bits at the Cambridge Science Festival earlier this week. Uh, I recorded um, some pieces of conversations that I had uh, there, but the audio isn't very good. I don't know if I really want to release it as a podcast. I don't really know if there's enough good audio. There's enough good material, but in terms of the audio quality, I don't really know if it's good enough to release So it could be about a month before the next episode. Um, I also created a Twitter profile for this podcast uh, just uh, to give that a try to see if it works. It's uh, at ClimateSciPod. So the Sci is just S-C-I and the Pod is, well, you know, P-O-D. So that can be, I'm going to be posting information about new episodes there on that website. Uh, Sorry, not website. (laughs) on that Twitter handle, and uh, I'll keep posting under at Dan, Jan- Dan Jones Ocean, Dan Jans? Dan Jones Ocean as well, uh, for more information about the podcast and other events. Uh, yeah, personally, um, so this week I, I finally, I got a paper accepted that we've been working on for a long time. Um, it's, a really, it's, it's a relief, I've been working on this for a while, and uh, really, uh, I don't know, papers can just take so long to actually get out there uh, that um, sometimes by the time you're you're done and they're really published, it's it's, it's really emotional. <laughs> it's like, oh, finally, finally this happened. Um, yeah, so I was glad to see that happen. Um, of course, maybe I was just sleep deprived when I got the, uh, the announcement. Maybe that's why it was uh, a big experience for me. Maybe I just hadn't been sleeping enough. Uh, the last couple of days, but um, yeah, that's a big experience. So um, why don't we just go ahead and get to the conversation with Mike, because it's a really good one. I'm excited to get to it. I'll uh, 
turn it over. So uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy. Thanks. Try this thing. <laughs> so they're, they're pretty, very space age. Yeah, they're, they're pretty durable, so you know you can. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend it. Bounce them off the walls and things. You you could. They probably would be okay. You know, yeah. if you threw them up against the wall a little bit. Are there speakers um, as well? I don't think so. No, okay. I, I think they're just microphones, but they've got a neat setting on the back where, you know, they either, kind of respond to, sound right in front of them, or they kind of pick up a wider. Uh, angle or they pick up sound from all around them. You know, see, it's kind of got even on the back there. It's got some. Um, so you can use them to capture, you know, just talking into it or people talking nearby. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. But you don't have to speak into it or anything. You don't have to worry about. <laughs> testing, it. testing. No, no, it's fine. It's pretty good at picking up, um, you know, sound from wherever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah, I'm still trying to wake up, so I might. I feel like I'm a little slow right now. Like I'm. That's I'm okay. Mm. I'm like that every day, to be honest. You're reading R Williams's book. I like to keep it around. Yeah. And I like to keep it nearby and imagine that I'm going to read the whole thing. And, I, uh, it's on my list of things to do, but I, I'm already resigned to the fact that I won't. <laughs> um, really should have put color figures in. Yeah, some color figures. It's, in there. It's, just black, I mean, yeah. figures like this, you know, we know and love, and they do look good. Um, but having them in colour in the book would have been so much nicer. I guess that would have made it more expensive, too. They probably can. It just might cost twice as much or something. Well, that's right. Some, sometimes they put, like, colour inserts in the middle, but then that's a bit fiddly because you've got to mm. back and forth. With them. <laughs> to see the nice version of this picture, go to the middle of the book. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard this idea that like you um, when you buy a book what you're buying is not the book itself but you're buying the idea that you will have time to read it yeah so you're buying the like it com it's a comforting notion that the like I'm waiting for like, the books that you can put under your pillow at night and wake up in the morning <laughs> just having absorbed some of the information so is that like an audio yeah. book could you put like earphones in and listen to an audio book oh, overnight no. and you just maybe. get the drip feed of knowledge. Yeah. That'd be fantastic. Your subconscious. Yeah. Maybe you should record Rick Williams' book. <laughs> you, should, you should do the audio for it. We should do an audio book version of... <laughs> like Stephen Fry reading Harry Potter or something. <laughs> yeah. You could do it. I don't um, think so. No, positive vorticity. So. <laughs> We'd have hours and hours of Mike Meredith talking about... <laughs> A long card rise. That's right. Just what do you want to listen no. to, kids? Oceanography! <laughs> Relative vorticity! Yeah. And, and other phrases you will never hear. Anywhere else. <laughs> Anywhere else except this one weird pocket, this one yeah. weird weird community, this one little pocket that we are. Yeah, so um, how's your week going? It's just a soft start, by the way. It just kind of, there's no hard. Okay. Start. You just kind of you know roll into it, so there's no like there's no point when it's like on or, or off even. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. How's it going? It's going. It's it's. I'm a bit tired. Yeah. 
I'm a bit tired. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> it feels like it's been a long week. Yeah. I, uh, some some just feel longer than others, and this one feels like it's been a little bit long. Have you had yeah. any travel? Any hopping around different places? Or no, I've been I've been keeping my head down and trying to get on with this IPCC chapter. Yeah. Um, which is. It's going okay, um, but it's a it's an awful lot of work. I mean, one, one of the things I wanted to talk about, like what that process has been like, because you've been in the yeah. thick of it. So you're the you're like the lead author, and that gives you kind of a coordinating role for this IPCC special report, right? You've got to take you know information from lots of different sources and try to synthesize it and put in. Well, a, yeah. yeah. I mean, so there's a team of lead authors um, who are sort of appointed because of their expertise and overview and insight into all these different relevant aspects um, but then for the chapter that I'm involved in which is the Polar Regions one there's two coordinating lead authors so there's myself and a guy called Martin Summercorn from Norway and it's our job to try and ensure that all the deadlines are met and everything's in the right um, the right format and to sort of guide the lead authors on what they should be doing mm. And also reflect the material outwards and upwards, so that we have to try and coordinate with all the other chapters to make sure that the total is greater than the sum of the parts and it all joins up seamlessly and what have you. And also we get involved with the the distilling of the information um, into the key messages for and the summary for policymakers and things like that. So there's a there's a role in kind of um, drawing out what the what the real highlights are and what the real important story is, yeah. um, which is, which is fascinating, um, and challenging and iterative, very iterative, very iterative, very iterative. <laughs> <laughs> you sort of, you know, you have a go at something and say, "Great, we've done that," yeah. then, then you realise, in fact, that's just the first of a dozen iterations that yeah. are needed. You know, don't so. get too excited at that first draft. You, you exactly. Know, once, you, once you get the whole thing together, the first draft, like, no, no, that's just the beginning. That's <laughs> you, just the you've beginning. You've now just started. Yeah. Good luck with that. And yeah. The, yeah. You find yourself, I think, you probably find yourself in that position a lot, I think, right? Is this in this coordinating role? Oh, ripping stuff up and like, starting you know, again. Thanks, Sam. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Every now and then you look at your work and just go, this is all garbage. I need to get rid of all Well, that's, always, that's the hardest thing, actually. Once, once you've spent some time on something, I think it's a human tendency. You don't want to say, actually, that's not a good starting point. Yeah. And just throw that in the bin and start again with a different so mindset. Kill your darlings. Kill your, Kill your babies. Nobody wants to do that, but sometimes it is the best, the best approach. But anyway. when do you know? I don't know. What's what are some signals? I guess of like, I mean, it's probably hard to generalize, but like, you know, there, there must be kind of red flags that come up that tell you that uh, this whole thing just whatever, whether it's a paper or a report or something that this just needs to be scrapped. I think it's when you sort of when you when you realize you just hit a dead end when you've tried iterating something or modifying it and you just realize you're not getting any closer to where it needs to be hmm. and then you just have to sort of be honest with yourself and that's the hardest part just being honest with yourself and say that was a blind alley let's take a step back and do it differently so you've creatively reached some asymptote and that asymptote the limit of that yeah. is not where you want it to be exactly you know exactly. it's at, it's at 0.5 you want it to be at 0.9 
Yeah. And it's not going to get to point nine unless you start at a negative point five. Fortunately, it's rare. But you know, yeah. is that like if you publish this, everyone's knowledge will decrease? Everyone will know. <laughs> everyone will now know less about the climate system. So you than did read my to. last paper. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's rare. It's rare that that happens. To be honest, but sometimes you do have to just sort of. Yeah, take the hit and start again. But no, I was kind of thinking about you in particular. You know, you end up in these coordinating roles and these leadership roles. That's kind of where you are, I guess, in your career progression. So you're doing a lot of you know coordinating between other folks and a lot of synthesizing. And it, it seems like, are you comfortable in that? Do you like that role? Is that something you enjoy doing, or do you wish you could tune tune things a little bit differently? Or uh, I kind of do, and I don't. I mean, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a double-edged sword. I mean, I like I like learning new things and things like this IPCC report or you know, any number of other activities. Yeah, you know, it's a great way to get involved and learn new stuff and interact with people who come from you know sometimes completely different mindsets, completely different walks of life. I mean, we're working with you know policymakers and lawyers and yeah. sorts of things, which is fascinating. Um, but it does bring challenges and. Yeah, the the larger the coordination sort of role you take on, the more you have to kind of um, really commit to it and accept that it's going to take a lot of time. Yeah. And if you've got any sort of hankerings to do your own science, then you know, progressively you see those, mm. you know, being marginalised and you, know, you sort of give the ideas to other people to follow up rather than doing it yourself. But yeah. but that's that's good. I mean that 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 is progress. Um, and it's a more effective way of getting the science done as well as making the science important. Um, but it does sort of, you do sometimes do it with a bit of a heavy heart because when you see a really nice paper come out that, you know, maybe you've contributed to and your name's on somewhere, but really you wanted to do it. You wanted to be, <laughs> you yeah, wanted to do it and do publish it. it and, you know, <laughs> bang a drum for the, you know, the importance of what it is. And yeah. then it's, yeah, a little bit of a, it's a good problem to have, though, to have too many ideas, more ideas than time, I guess. Um, I, I hear what you're saying, though. Like, you know, it, it's not necessarily where a lot of researchers see themselves, yeah. right? When I guess when you're first starting out, when you're first doing your PhD and first doing, you know, postdocs and stuff, you don't necessarily, you might, but you might not necessarily picture, like, okay, that's that's the end state. I'm going to be coordinating things and leading things. And mm. um, it, I'm not saying... Um, that, that's not a negative statement. I just think in terms of expectations, that's not often you know where people kind of set their sights. So yeah. I wonder, yeah. you know, when you when you find yourself in that position down the road, maybe there's a little bit of a tension there between you know where you thought you were headed and where you actually headed. Although it's important, like you said, to recognize that that is a good thing to do. You know, these kind of coordinating jobs, it's very valuable, and somebody needs to do it, and it's good to have you know good people doing it. And yeah. so you are doing a valuable thing, and. It's um, but but uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying. That, that we kind of, for a lot of researchers, we want to we want to be you know making the individual contributions. We we have there's kind of this desire to, yeah, I wanna I wanna do that. You know, I'm, every now and then a paper comes out that I look at and go, I really I really wish I'd done that. <laughs> like I wish I'd done that, and I, I maybe could have if I had you know, more time or resources and things. Yeah. But you know, there's only time is a finite resource and you only have so much time and energy that you can spread around yeah. so balancing all of that becomes a big big challenge I think it does and I think 
It partly depends what your motivation is, and of course, your motivations change anyway. I mean, I guess, I guess most scientists got into science because you know there's a a nerd inside of them who just enjoys science. Totally. I mean, yeah. you know, we we do it. <laughs> primarily or we get into it primarily because we enjoyed doing it when we were younger and yeah. why else would you put yourself through a phd and exactly. moving around and you know if you, if you weren't the low part. salaries and the long hours and all the rest of it um <laughs> why would you do that if you didn't enjoy doing science yeah but of course you know there's also the fact that we we believe that the science matters and i think it does you know um sometimes we lose sight of that a little bit i think but yeah, the science that we do does fundamentally matter and it's important. Um, but that inner nerd is always still there, I think. And so mm. although your motivation may change as you know, your career develops and you, you move more to try and creating impact from the science or managing groups or programs or whatever and you know, delivering larger and larger um, amounts of science, um, you know, there is still that inner nerd who just yeah. wants to far up MATLAB and suck in some new data and see what it shows and see what you can do with it and make some beautiful pictures. And Can you do that today or are you all booked up? Are yeah, I have to go now because I'm going to go. <laughs> I've just talked myself into uh, going and playing with MATLAB for the rest of the day. Let's but. do that, actually. We can just, that'll be the rest of the podcast. Yeah. We'll just... Yeah. Be, that's great uh, audio, right? We'll describe what just we're doing talk, in MATLAB. Yeah. No, just, like, hit, just hit no. tapping for the rest of the day. <laughs> no, we can narrate it. Now yeah. I'm importing this module. Yeah, yeah. the perfect podcast. <laughs> Great radio. Yeah. Whoa, look at that. <laughs> look at that. <laughs> I'll put it on Twitter later. We'll put all the pictures. Yeah. Well, I'll take yeah. pictures and we'll tweet the, here's what we what yeah, we've derived. That's right. Yeah, and that'd be we'll, great. And then we'll put the paper out next week, and we'll go ahead. And <laughs> like, here's the Johns and Meredith. I'm first, by the way. Johns and Meredith. Um, you know, See, again, again, I get, like, I get. Like, uh, <laughs> Uh, all right, you can go again. Once again, I always end up somewhere down. Uh, okay, you can be. It can be Meredith and John. That's fine. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. I, insist. I insist. Oh, I've crushed your spirit. I'm sorry. I got you excited, and then I just dashed your, <laughs> dashed your hopes. <laughs> I noticed we have like weirdly similar boots today. Um, we do. Yeah, it's kind we of. We do. We're obviously, and we both have similar jackets as well. Yeah. This is another. This is perfect podcast. <laughs> Again, yeah. Again, dressed for it. We have. We we both look fantastic. But, um, no one else will know. Nobody else will know. Yeah, no that's right. Unless we take a picture and obnoxiously tweet it about like, that feels pretentious though. I don't know. Well, you, could, you could do it as a sort of you just line the boots up against the wall and photograph those and do, you know, whose boots is whose. Black and white. <laughs> Artsy, black and white photos. Yeah, you could do like that the, too. You could do that too. These that boots, there used to be somebody in these boots and now they're all by themselves and it's, it's weighty. <laughs> it's like, it has the, you know, heaviness to it. <laughs> like, yeah. Where'd you, where'd you grow up? Um, where did I grow up? I forget. Uh, I grew up in a little village called Frampton Cottrell, which is in the West Country. West Country, okay. It's near Bristol. Bristol's oh, yeah. the nearest, biggest place to it. Oh, that's um, right. You told me that. Yeah, Bristol's sort of your, in the in that broad sense, your hometown and that, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess it's the place that I sort of identify with that ever gets mentioned on television or anything like that. So, mm. yeah, um, that's right. where I grew up. It's a small village with no real claim to fame. Um, uh, but I'm not the only oceanographer. 
in the UK community. That's right. It came from Hampton Cottage. You mentioned that. Ah. Um, Do you remember who the other one is? No, I don't. You don't? Sorry. <laughs> Could you remind me? It's Joe, Joe Hopkins from Liverpool. Yeah, Joe Hopkins. Yeah, no. just from a random conversation in a bar in Stanley, we established that we both came from Hampton Cottage and lived you know, 200 yards away from each other or something like that. Yeah. I'm older than her, so we didn't, we didn't, we weren't at school at the same time okay. or anything like that. Um, but you weren't contemporaries in that sense, no. but you're both from no. the, yeah. Yeah. But we went to the same schools and had some of the same teachers just at different times. Yeah. So that puts that village pretty high on the list of like oceanographers per capita. Well, I think so. Know, yeah. I think if you did a map of oceanographers per head of population, you know, this could well come out. You know, pretty close to the top of the list. I thought you said it didn't have a claim to fame. This is clearly the like. This well, is, this is we produce more oceanographers than any other English village. Maybe, <laughs> maybe they'll put that on the sign. Welcome to yeah. Frampton Cottrell. <laughs> more oceanographers per head of population yeah. than any other village. Who did you say the other person was? It was sorry, the, um, Joe Hopkins. Joe Hopkins. Okay, yeah. 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 So on the sign, it'll say, you know, home of Hopkins and Meredith. <laughs> Again. Again. Who then goes first? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I'll have to go under yeah. cover of night and paint my name in front, you know, while no one's looking or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, so you were there, and then went to primary school there, and then yep. secondary school nearby. Yep. But it was called something different, right? It used to be called, or is that even, even? there used to be a different name for primary school and secondary school, right? Or is well... That, or is that before your time? So I, I don't have a good sense of... The naming kind of overlaps and is a bit sort of interchangeable. Okay. So the secondary school was a comprehensive school, mm. um, and there are still comprehensive schools that are secondary schools, and that's sort okay. of, they're kind of a little bit interchangeable. But, uh, okay, yeah. yeah. I don't understand it. I just send my son to a building, and they teach him stuff. And, he you comes know, out cleverer. He comes out, yeah. Well, <laughs> so that's, that's all you need. To be, that's yeah. all you need. <laughs> is it the same building every day, or do you just try different <laughs> ones? So, yeah, just, <laughs> try this one out today, son. See what yeah, you yeah. like this. You send him to Damped or something like that, say, hey, yeah, have a play, see what you get. You'd have fun. We're going to go to the math open day this weekend okay. which is uh yeah noon to four he loved that last year yeah and i took him to the chemistry open day last weekend and he loved it we spent all day there ten thirty to four thirty. yeah we did everything every demo every little that was mm. he said that the chemistry department is the only place where he doesn't get bored is what he said he's like That's this is brilliant. this is his home <laughs> yeah yeah he loves it there this is like the well i think it's moving at the moment the, the cambridge science center you know, we hadn't popped our heads in there before. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. yeah I took my daughters there a few times. Um, it wasn't huge, but there was lots of uh, interactive things to do. Everything was something that you could pick up yeah. or turn a dial or see, see how something works. It wasn't just displays in cabinets, which is, you know, not what children want. Yeah. Um, I think it's moving somewhere into the middle of the city at the moment, so it's not open at the moment, but that's it was well, really good. Yeah. They've got a pop-up science centre it's just like in Barclays in a bank that we that he loves. He always go, goes in there. Oh yeah. So yeah, I should take him to the real one, the full one now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, I don't. I'm not sure if it's open again yet, but it, it the the previous version was really good. We went there several times. Yeah. And of course, there's the Bass Open Day this weekend. Yeah. yeah. We're coming to that too. Yeah, that's oh, cool. right. I might yeah. see you there. Yeah, possibly yeah. see you there. Apparently, we're not supposed to take our visitors into our offices, which feels weird because it's like, well, this is our. This is our office. I understand where they're coming from. It's the whole, you know, t- yeah. uh, security and yeah. also um, insurance and things, I'm sure. But yeah, it, <laughs> I know he's going to ask and I'm going to have to say, sorry, I can't take you to my own office this weekend. 
but if you come back a different day, I can take you. To, Has he ever to been the, to your office? Yeah, a couple. He likes drawing the whiteboards and stuff. And yeah, just, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's his. That's his machine learning work right there. For the, I was going to say he's pretty like, pretty advanced with his equations. Yeah, actually, these, yeah, are, these he, are impressive. He's transposing matrices and things. And yeah, uh, yeah. Where where'd you go to university for your under, undergrad? My undergrad was Southampton. Southampton, yeah. And then I did the masters in oceanography at Southampton. So that was kind of when I got into marine science. Um, so it was physics undergrad, right? Yeah. And then, so what drew you into the oceanography? Like, what was the kind of, um, you know, draw of it? I guess. It, it was kind of a bit random, to be honest. Um, I, so I did the physics degree, and it was fine, but I wasn't really grabbed by anything within it. I don't think there was anything that I'd done as part of the physics degree that made me think this is what I want to do. Yeah. Um, you know, for a career or for further study or whatever. Um, but Southampton uh, is just one of those places that has an oceanography department. And so I knew a few people, especially from playing rugby and things like that, that were studying oceanography. Um, and it sounded interesting, but I didn't know much about it. Um, but they run this, uh, this one-year master's course in oceanography. Um, so when I finished the physics degree, I applied for... Uh, quite, a, quite a few things all over the place um, and I thought I'd just apply for a lot of things and choose from whatever I get offered mm. um, so some further courses some jobs you know um, all sorts of things and the, the master's degree was something that I, I was offered and I thought well that's it sounds interesting I could give it a go it's only one year if I don't like it so I could always <laughs> rethink after that if um if I decide it's not for me. But. Yeah, that's what Dave Monday said too. Um, I think he started oceanography undergrad, but he also said it was a bit random. He just kind of became aware that there was an oceanography department in Southampton and was interested enough in it for whatever reason, you know, just, okay, I'll give that a try. Why not? It sounds like mm. something mm. something good. Yeah. So it feels like there's a bit of a, if you build it, they will come sort of element to it. Uh, there, those options need to exist for people to notice them and to say, okay, I'll try studying this. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So that and points to like, we should invest in the things that, you know, we want to be, want to have good science expertise in down the road. No. Well, definitely. And, um, you know, the, when you're applying for these things, um, you know, a big element is, can you afford to do it? Yeah, that's right. Um, and at that time, you know, the government made available a certain number of grants for people to go and study these courses. Um, if that wasn't available, I probably wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe I'd be doing something different. Well, almost certainly I'd be doing something different now, hmm. whatever that might be. It might be even more important and more fun than oceanography, though I can't imagine what that could possibly be. <laughs> Is there such a thing? Um, so, yeah, it's funny how these things, they sort of, they turn on what seems random at the time, but it does rely on someone having thought about, you know, making an investment in people and education. Yeah, um, that pathway has to exist. That pathway has to exist, yeah. exactly. And socially, yeah, we have to make those pathways available that we want people to be able to follow and to exactly. invest in. Yeah. Exactly. And ultimately, it doesn't matter whether Mike Meredith or Dan Jones or whoever follows that pathway as long as a number of clever people do. Yeah. Um, and Mike Meredith and Dan Jones can go and somehow we ended you know, up professional footballers or astronauts or something. <laughs> I mean, whatever maybe. Yeah, you said clever people, and somehow we we snuck in there. You know, it's, it's, yeah, clever it's, people yeah. and Mike Meredith and, and Mike Meredith. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, so you tried the masters, and 
you seemed to like something better, I guess, because you stuck stuck with it. And... I did. I think I think it was it was a really really good course actually, the master's degree. Um, you know, the the lecturing was good. Um, There's lots of you know practical work. We went out on the Solent in boats and measured the water and things like this. Nice. Um, really good people on it. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, so after that, I thought, yeah, this this is this is good. I can... And I did quite well at it, so I thought, give a PhD a go. So yeah. Was that also at Southampton, or you went that somewhere else? That was at UEA. UEA. I moved to UEA from the PhD. Okay. Yeah. Was that um, who did, who did you work with over there? Uh, Karen Haywood. Oh really? Oh okay. I didn't know that. So she's your advisor. Yep. Oh okay. I hadn't made that connection before. I wasn't ah, wasn't aware yeah. of that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, well, a lot of people are surprised about. It. I think I was one of her very first PhD students. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Because if I had to guess, I would, it, I'd say that you're not super different in, in age, just from a first kind of glance. So, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think so that, that makes sense. If well, you're I think one she's of one of these age, people you know. who just look eternally young anyway. Yeah. So you know, it's kind of. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think I was one of her. Great. Now she now she'll be on the show. Now she <laughs> can, get her, can get her on the podcast now. Yeah. 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 So what did you work on? Um, so it was a, a case PhD student with the Proudman Oceanographic Lab, which is now not clinical, hmm. um, and it was looking at changes in transport through Drake Passage. Okay. And Paul, Proudman Lab, um, had these time series of bottom pressure data from Drake Passage. Um, several years by even the time I started the PhD, which was very good. Um, and the idea was to use those and all sorts of other ancillary data to try and quantify somehow the changes in transport and understand the dynamics by relating it to wind forcing. And, was Chris Hughes already up there? Because I know bottom pressure is his, his thing, one of his things. So he wasn't at the start of my PhD, but then he sort of joined Paul towards the end of my PhD. Uh, and he and I ended up doing quite a lot of work together, Yeah, um, which was... Which is really good. I mean, he's a he's a very clever man, a very good collaborator. So you know, that's some of the some of the work I think that was actually came out really well in here. Yeah, yeah. Was there was there was that um, was there a field work element to that, or was that mostly working with data that that existed? Or um, I mean, I did participate in field work, um, but not really with the bottom pressure gauges. Um, you know, they have a, a technology group there with. Um, at the time, it was Bob Spencer and Pete Foden and people like that, and, and you know Jeff Hargreaves and Steve Mack who were still you know, involved in it, and they sort of look after the pressure gauges um, in different places and, and the tide gauges, and, and I never really got involved in the technical aspect of that. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I did do field work during my PhD, more on the, on the kind of like Woese style hydrography side of things, mm. so kind of like. Basin wide CTD sections. That was when I first went to sea, was on a, on a loose hmm. section across the South Atlantic. How long was that? That was, uh, I was about six weeks at sea on yeah. Discovery, the old Discovery. Hmm. And it was from Punta Arenas in Chile to Cape Town in South Africa. And it was. It was a long six weeks. <laughs> I was about to ask, was that a good, good experience or kind of mixed maybe? Or? Um, I would describe it as mixed, to be honest. I think, um, you know, for a first cruise, it sort of threw me in the deep end, yeah. and it was really full on, and it was, and you know what worst cruises are like, the CTDs round the clock, yeah. very repetitive, um, 
Really, it's about generating numbers. Yeah. Um, so you've got to love the numbers for their own sake. Yeah. Turning um, water into numbers. Turning water into numbers, exactly. Yeah. It's not going to find... It's not looking for penguins or whales or icebergs <laughs> or any of this sort of yeah. stuff. It's not process studies. It's really just doing the same measurement again and again and again and yeah. again and making some numbers. And the, the cruise that, that we were both on, you know, that was obviously much shorter. Yeah. And I felt like I just started to see the the beginnings of like, oh, this is how this process could start to feel kind of like Groundhog Day, kind of like doing the exact same yeah. thing every day. Yeah. You know, we didn't, we just did that short A23, so it wasn't really long enough for that feeling to set in, but I just started to get that sense of like, oh, okay, yeah. I see how this could be, yeah. <laughs> this could start to get a bit bizarre, a bit kind of surreal. They're doing this. It does thing. get a bit yeah. surreal, yeah. especially, <laughs> I mean, the, the section that we did on Discovery, um, it was relatively low latitude. It was sort of, I think it was about 45 south up to... 35 south or something like that so you know there were no icebergs really um there were bits of wildlife here and there but not like you see in the proper southern ocean yeah. so it really was you know one day very much like the previous one very much like the following yeah. one and to do that for six weeks is uh you know we do it because we care about the science but and, it, and it's nice being at sea as well but it is a long time mm -hmm. and i think if you offered me that again, or going on uh, a Weddell Sea cruise or Social Sea cruise where you've got all that scenery and all the ice and everything, um, and the chance to go ashore at places like South Georgia. Yeah. I know what I choose. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm just a tourist at heart. <laughs> <laughs> a tourist who doesn't mind doing some science along the way. Yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you did some, what, after you finished your PhD, where'd you end up? Well, I stayed at UEA for a little while um, as a postdoc to begin with. And I did some work with Andy Watson, um, working on tracer data. So he CSUs. was over there at the time? Yeah. Because he's over at Exeter now. He's at Exeter right. now. He, he was at PML, and then he spent some time at UEA, and he's now at Exeter. Okay. Um, so the tracer data was... Um, CFCs. So CFCs. CFCs. Oh, okay. Okay. So yeah. using that as a natural tracer into the ocean. Exactly. Exactly. So the point being that CFCs have got um, an atmospheric history that changes over time. Um, and when I was doing the work, it had kind of been increasing over time. Obviously, it's changed now because of the Montreal Protocol. Um, but if you measure the amount of CFCs dissolved in the seawater and make some potentially clunky assumptions. Uh, you can do some calculations about how long it might have been since that water last was in contact with the atmosphere. And if you do that over various sections in various places, you can infer things about the pathways of circulation, but also the rates um, of circulation and, and mixing. Now there's a lot of assumptions involved and all of those assumptions can be challenged in various different ways. And you have to be really careful that you don't all into any, you know, there's all sorts of different bear pits along the way where you can really screw it up. <laughs> um, but if you get it right, it can be very powerful. You know, it's a very useful constraint to have. Um, yeah. yeah, it helps you map out the kind of structure of the ocean and the circulation pathways and time scales and to see how all the different parts of it are connected to each other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. So I like to ask everybody, like, um, partly because I'm still trying to learn myself, even though I've been doing it a while. I like, just like gathering ideas about this. How do you handle writing? What's your kind of approach to writing these days? I 
I've always thought I'm really lucky in that I actually really enjoy writing. Yeah. Um, and I know some scientists, you know, they really enjoy doing the science, but then when it comes to writing it up or, you know, writing a proposal or whatever, they, they approach it with a real heavy heart because it doesn't motivate them at all and they just want to get it done and out of the way and get mm. back to doing the science. Um, but I've always enjoyed writing, so um, it doesn't scare me at all. And in fact, I quite like putting a few days aside and concentrating just on producing a paper or whatever it is I'm working on. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I enjoy the process. I, I think it's... It's almost for me. It's almost therapeutic, where you can kind of just be by yourself yeah. and produce something. Mm. Um, and for me, that's that's quite a good thing. Uh, I think for a lot of scientists, it's it's like uh, writing is awful, but having written something is really nice. Yeah. So the process for a lot of folks is is rough, but then once you're done, you have something that you're really proud of afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that, that's good. So it's um. I guess when you're writing, um, I guess one of the things that can be a little intimidating when you're writing scientific papers is you kind of picture your reviewers, you know, reading over your shoulder a bit. That's in your in your head. Is that a pressure that you that bothers you, or do you feel like you now have learned your audience and learned how to communicate things and learned how to um, you know, to, to it, it can it can be really intimidating when you first start out, right? Because you have you feel like you don't have any idea what these reviewers are going to say, mm. and you haven't been around long enough to kind of get a sense of the spectrum of here's all the possible responses. So, mm. does that does that weigh on you at all, or how do you handle that? Not really. Yeah. Um, I think I think most of the time when you sit down and write a paper, you know that it will get published. Um, maybe not in your first choice journal, depending mm. on how high you're aiming, but yeah. you know it'll get published somewhere. Um, so I don't really beat myself up about trying to uh, second guess what the reviewers might say. Yeah. I think what I try to do is I try to have a really good idea in my mind of exactly what the story is that I'm trying to tell and, that, and then structure what I'm writing around that story. And a really good bit of advice that I was given when I was starting out was um, write the abstract first. The point being that in the abstract, you can just say in 300 words or however many, you know, what the issue is, what you did about it, and why it matters. And then for the rest of the paper, you can just include only the information that tells that story. Right, yeah. Because I think the trap that a lot of scientists may <clears throat> fall into when they're starting out is they write everything that they've done, mm -hmm. and then they try to summarise it in abstract, and they, f they find that they've written 50 pages. Yeah. Um, mainly it's because they weren't really clear on the story that they were trying to tell first of all but I think once you get that story clear it becomes a lot easier finding the story can be iterative too though can't it you know you're looking at your data you're looking at your outputs and you're trying to sometimes you're even trying to figure out the best question that you could ask to pull you know something interesting out of the data that you have in front of you yeah um, because that's not necessarily obvious you know you might go into a project with a question in mind but well, maybe the data you get doesn't address that question super well, and you need to think about, you know, can I do anything with this? Can I do something different with the data that I have? Mm -hmm. So that's that's really iterative. But I guess what you're saying is, try to go ahead and nail that down first. You know, go through that iterative process first before you start trying to, you know, make it into a paper. Uh, For me, know, yeah. yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that we should always be open to making discoveries, and I think. 
very often, you know, if you look back at the science that we've done, I think it's true of any sciences, you know, some of the most important things they found out were possibly not what they were looking for mm. when they started the project. Yeah. Um, and we have to be aware to those opportunities as much as we possibly can. But what I try to do is when I sit down to write the paper, um, I've iterated it as much as I can up to that point um, and clarified what I want to say. You know, the reviewers can come back and say, have you tried this, have you tried that? And that's all, you know, that's part of their role. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it can lead to, you know, new, new projects, new ideas as well. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I was pondering this question this morning on the way in about, um, you know, how there are two different kinds of errors that you can make, statistical errors. One of them is you can see patterns that aren't there. And the other, type two, I think, I think that's type one, right? Type one is where you see stuff that isn't there. And type two is you miss things that are there. And I was thinking about you know, in which, which direction would you like to be biased in? You know, if you had to pick, <laughs> if you had to pick one of those errors to be cursed with forever, you know, like which, which one um, would you want to be cursed with for, you know, being more, making more type one errors or making more type two errors? Uh, what do you think? That's a, that's <laughs> almost a philosophical question, isn't it? Um, yeah. I don't know. The, the, the type 2 errors, I think there's probably more potential for you to hate yourself afterwards. <laughs> if you had some data that has a really important story in it, a really important finding, and you yeah. missed it, yeah. then you, if someone else found it, you could really hate yourself for a long time. Yeah, possibly. Uh, I've got an anecdotal story about that real quick that uh, when I first started out I was in astrophysics and the my undergrad advisor had a story about his advisor who apparently would have discovered gravitational lensing first if he had bothered to I, I don't mean bothered in a negative way this this was how the story was told to me because the story comes to me with a lot of frustration yeah. from my advisor's advisor yeah. Uh, yeah. that if he had he had like a stack of you know observations on his desk somewhere, and if he had happened to take those and flip through them and analyze them at the right time, he would have been the person to <sighs> discover that like this kind of gravitational lensing. Yeah. But um, so can, the Nobel Prize you know. slipped through his fingers. <laughs> you can drive yourself crazy with that kind of stuff, though, couldn't you? I guess that's the that's the danger of being too hard on yourself about type two errors. Is like there's no way there's too many patterns out there, yeah. too much stuff. You're going to miss stuff. You're not going to be able to find everything. Don't torture yourself. Um, yeah. I think <laughs> don't torture yourself is probably the key thing. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it will happen. It'll happen to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. We're drowning in data these days. So, um, yeah. Finding the key bits of it is really hard. Yeah. But, yeah. So that's the type two. How about type one? How do you feel about type one? Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, there's the potential for embarrassment, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is, which is never great. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess you really hope that you know what you're doing well enough that you don't fall into that trap, and the reviewers also will scrutinise it well enough. Yeah, that's part of why I think if I had to pick, I think I would get stuck with the cursed with a type one bias mm. because. Um, you know, if you detect a pattern that isn't there, mm. that's not the end of the story, right? You can, you can try to write it up 
get it reviewed, you can ask people about it, you can put it through this scientific feedback mechanism. Yeah. And by and large, I think that works. I think that process is pretty, overall, pretty healthy. And so I think, yeah. you know, you, for, for me, I don't, I don't mind sharing an idea that, even if it's kind of half-baked or you know, not all the way thought through, because I want that feedback, because mm. I want that, like, you know, please, you know, I'm, I'm going to try not to make a type 1 error, but please, you know, scientific community, help me out. Am I making a type 1 error, or I need to hear from all of you? Yeah. And I guess, to me, that, that points to the fact that science is not, it's not just like a person sitting all by themselves anymore. Like, it, it's a community process, and it's a social process that involves, you know, Absolutely. peer review and yeah. going to conferences and getting, you know, good questions, yeah. things like that. I think one of the key things there is that um, you've got to be prepared to you got to be prepared to abandon your idea yeah. if the feedback you get there's and the, if other people's analysis of the same data show different things. Yes, there's the kill your darlings thing again. You, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You've got to be prepared to be dispassionate and say, okay, that isn't what I thought it was. Um, yeah. It's not a comment on you as a scientist. It's just part of the process. No, that's right. Yeah, I, I came up with this during my PhD years. I came up with this little... Um, um, little not quite a dynamical system, but in that kind of spirit. And I was really hoping it was going to explain something. Mm. I won't go into detail about what it is, but like I, I, I came up with this thing that I thought was really fun and clever, and I'm like, oh, I hope this explains something. I had my hammer, so I had to go find a nail. <laughs> I haven't been able to find a nail yet. It doesn't seem to explain anything, but I really like that hammer. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to throw my hammer yeah. away, yeah. but I can't find any nails. Yeah. So yeah, you have to be, but you have to be willing if it's not a useful thing. I guess either kill your darlings or put them, you know, in a, in a bucket somewhere and say, maybe later. That, that might be useful later. Cryogenic suspension. Yeah. And be prepared to thaw them out later so, uh, when, when the climate is so right. Don't kill your darlings, cryogenically freeze your darlings. I think so. I think so. <laughs> wait, wait for them to you know, be useful. Yeah, so you, um, we kind of are hinting at it already, but like, I think science is really creative. You know, you're having to come up with new ideas and combine data and concepts into something new so is there anything you do for yourself to feed that or is there anything you do to like um, make it could be a process you like to do or even just kind of maybe some hobbies that you find kind of fuel your creativity or is it more about finding those little pockets of time like we were talking about and using those pockets to you know to, to feed your creativity uh, I think the thing I do most is I talk to people mm, yeah um, I'm actually I mean, you're absolutely right. Science, science is a is a creative endeavor. Um, it's not engineering. We don't make widgets. Um, it requires a lot of imagination um, to actually understand what you're going to even attempt before you try and get funding for it or before yeah. you try the project. Engineers can be creative too, but I know what you mean. Well, they can. I know what they you can. Mean. It's, not, a different, not... it's a different objective, right? It's, it's a, different a different object. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not belittling engineers here, um, yeah. um, but it is a it is a creative thing, and you do need that imagination um, to try and come up with the ideas for what you want to do. Yeah. I actually, I don't learn from reading things very well, mm. which is strange because I like writing, but I find it really hard to learn from reading papers. I think it's because I have a short attention span. Mm. I think, you know, if I read a paper, I, halfway through or a quarter of the way through, my mind will drift off and it won't come back again. So 
but can we just tweet you our papers? Is that, that, would, that, be that would be perfect. Really <laughs> little, <laughs> like 280 characters. <laughs> yeah. That would be perfect. Um, but the way I do learn is by listening to talks or talking to people, mm. especially engaging with people. And yeah. I think that by having that, inter- that interaction with them, where I can ask them questions and I can say, hang on, can you explain this a little more? Yes. Um, then stuff goes into my mind a lot more readily that's right and then it triggers things in my mind that i think hey what i can you know come back with ideas have you thought about it maybe we could do other stuff you know yeah yeah um and then you have when you think about that concept you then think about that person and the experience you had and that it becomes something that's more tangible yeah as opposed to just something on a page yeah exactly Uh, yeah yeah so so it becomes a very social living breathing thing yeah. science and creativity it becomes organic active, you know, I mean, organic, it, and yeah. it's those sort of um, not random interactions between the different elements of it but there, there's an element of randomness to them uh, in terms of who you talk to and when you talk to them yeah. and what they've been working on um, and obviously what you try to do is you have try to have enough interactions and enough people that you work with that the good science will always bubble up somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to try and plan it as well. I mean, that's why we have big programs. You know, we yeah. know in general what the big issues are that we want good science about. But what we don't want to do is kill the creativity yeah. by you know, saying at the very start what the answer is because then it's not research. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's so. a really important distinction. Yeah, that if you, if you try at the beginning of a project to say, here's exactly what we will do you know, week by week, Mm. well then there's no room for you to think about what you're going to do there's no room for you to be creative like you said and to explore yeah. different avenues and things so yeah. you know when you when you fund science or when you like hey, hey we're uh, doing a thing <laughs> sorry <laughs> um, so uh, I never I should get like a sign or something <laughs> do not disturb you know, yeah, just to, well, just to let people know that that's going on that, yeah. that they're kind of recording I found it weirdly hard to find tape, though. I know there's some in the post room, but it's like, that's so far away. <laughs> so it's such a long walk. I'm way too lazy to go there. That's, that's you know. nearly the other side of the building. Isn't oh, it? It's like the middle of the building. I, I can't. Oh. <laughs> I can't oh. do this. Yeah. yeah. So there's, yeah, being too prescriptive is the, is, can be an enemy of creativity. They can, they can defeat each other. Yeah. I think it can. I mean, we, you know, we need to do science of different types. We need to do strategic science where, you know, we do projects and programs that are specifically targeted at things we know are important, like climate. Um, and that's fine. But like you say, if we know the answer before we start, then it's not research. Yeah. Um, yeah. We do, even within those, I think we need to leave enough space for you know, real creativity. And that's where the best science comes through as well. Yeah. Um, and as well as that, you know, we do need to still support blue skies science, which is just the real random stuff that at the time you have the idea, you don't know if it's going to be important to the man in the street or the woman in the street necessarily. Yeah. But if you do enough of it, a lot of it will be. And that's what we see time and again is that, you know, real innovation can come from what seem like strange ideas to begin with. Uh, and, you know, we need to have that sort of clever people doing clever things just like your university experience like we were describing you have to create the right conditions and have the right fertilizer in place you know yeah. for this organic science thing to grow and, and yeah. happen exactly yeah exactly. 
um, yeah, and then they kind of uh, end up hopefully benefiting everybody, you know, the extra knowledge, new knowledge created, new, um, sometimes new technologies, not all the time, sometimes it is just about understanding how something works so that you know how to, you know, like the climate system, you understand better how to predict what it's going to do and project what it's going to be like in the future. Mm. Um, yeah, and that can be one of the fertile things that comes out of science. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's worth doing. Of course, this is two scientists talking about how science is worth doing, so I understand if some people are listening going like, well, yeah, you would say that. <laughs> but, but hopefully, <laughs> Do you think we're possibly a little agree. biased? I mean, I uh, we, we try not to be, but it's, it's not impossible, is it? I think, yeah, we should be funding science. At, I mean, what do you think? At least 50% GDP is about fair, probably. Well, I would have said closer to 70. Close to 70. But, you know, again, I accept yeah. I may be a little biased. Yeah. No, but nobody quote that we're kidding <laughs> no, no, please don't pull that out of context yeah. but I think um, most people would accept that science does bring significant benefits to society yeah it's not just people pursuing their hobbies it does actually matter um, and it's the way of getting the best science per dollar yeah. um, and that isn't always you know, a very prescriptive approach and nor is it just saying to the scientists, here, have a wheelbarrow full of money, go off and spend it, and tell us what you did. <laughs> There's uh, a line from, uh, I think it's Futurama, where um, I think it's the professor who says, I forget what they're doing, but they're trying to do something big, and he's like, well, for this, I'm going to need flaming dump trucks full of grant money. <laughs> 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 so you should use that in your next pitch. <laughs> I think, I, yeah, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. How much I, I can cite that flaming dump Futurama trucks. 2007 or something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, do you want to talk about Cromulent? Your, your, your attempts, to, speaking of The Simpsons and Futurama and that world, you know, you... Did you manage to do it? Did you get Cromulent into the I did. scientific literature? I did, and we can blame Andrew Myers for that. That was entirely his fault. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because he was... Um, I didn't know much about it, but then he was telling me that there was this uh, endeavour underway to try and get the word embiggen into the scientific <laughs> literature, which is from The Simpsons. Mm -hmm. um, and apparently someone had done that and got into... I don't know, an astronomy journal or yeah. something like that. And so he said the next challenge is to get the word cromulent in, which was part of the same scene in The Simpsons. Yeah. Um, and so we had just written this paper about Taylor columns in the Southern Ocean. And I thought, I wonder if I can get away with this. So I put the word cromulent in there. Yeah. Um, and it slipped by everybody. The reviewers didn't spot it. The copy editors didn't spot typesetters, it. Typesetters. Typesetters. So there, it's, yeah. it's, in a, it's in JGR Ocean. So you can go and have a look. <laughs> so now the publisher will aggressively <laughs> go back and strike this. I know they'll be they'll, they'll, they'll go and publish how, a correction or something. How like dare that. you? Yeah. No, it's. But I think it's, it's that's fine, a, right? a career high for me to be yeah. honest. I, I, I'm actually prouder of that than many things. That it should I've be done. on your list. It should be in the bass. You know, your bass profile of like, well, here's how many papers I have. I got <laughs> this many words into the lexicon, <laughs> into the scientific lexicon. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah, this has been fun. Is there um, is there something coming down the pipe scientifically, either small scale, big scale, whatever it is that you're excited about? Like something that you are really excited to see. You want to see how it comes together. Is there like a science story that's converging that you want to? And actually, it doesn't have to be our field. It could be whatever your whatever's exciting your creativity right now. Uh, well, within our field, the the science like keep wanting to get back to and haven't had the time to do it is more on 
<clears throat> the work with transient tracers, like we were talking about earlier, yeah. CFCs, because there's some really nice data sets on CFCs. And there was a little bit of work done um, by Darren War uh, and colleagues using CFC tracer data to put constraints on changes in the overturning circulation in the Southern Ocean, which is something that, you know, a, a subject that we love dearly and believe is, in, you know, very important. Um, and they did a nice analysis, but obviously there's a lot more data now. Um, and you know, the point I made earlier, interpreting this data is, uh, is really, there's a lot of nuances to it, you have to be really careful. Um, so I think there's new techniques that can be deployed. Um, and it could be some of the most important stuff um, that I'm you know, interested in at least. Um, but it's all on the back burner at the moment. Mm. Um, you know, yeah, at the moment, this IPCC report is dominating much of what I do. And this podcast, it just goes on forever and ever. That you just, uh, just won't let you out. Of. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I was just looking around and wondering where the uh, the fire exit is. But uh, no, 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 you can pull a fire alarm somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, no, yeah. it's, it's fine. There's no maximum minimum length. You know, you, we, we can go as long as you want, or or you know, if you're feeling, what is if it you're feeling like, but yeah, little, 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 plenty of time. Yeah, yeah. you feel feeling okay. Feeling yeah, right. yeah, yeah, okay. That's yeah. good. Just let me know when you're bored. I like because to, I, I tend to ramble on. You just have to shut me up. Yeah. Oh, that, that's the long format thing. You just keep going, and you just, just keep see going where it goes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, so you're excited about that. Anything like this not in our field that. Um, you see kind of even in the distance that you're like, that's kind of cool. I want to see what happens. Scientific thing. Yeah, or, yeah. No, I don't really know, to be honest. I, I, I've kind of got a little bit of tunnel vision of late. Mm. Um, mainly because of writing things like the orchestral proposal. Yeah. Um, I guess in the past couple of years, I've, I've not been as outward looking as I would like to have been in terms of looking across other disciplines. Um, so there's orchestra and now IPCC and it's all kind of focused on you know, some specific elements. The nice thing about the IPCC is it, it's, it is very diverse and I think more than anything I'm looking forward to reading the whole report including everybody else's chapters um, just to educate myself. I mean not for me to actually go and do anything yeah. specifically with in terms of responding to it but just learning because yeah. it's is so different to you know what I think of as you know the IPCC work that I've been involved in previously, which is all about the physical basis for climate change. You know, this is it includes that, but it's also the impacts of climate change on ecosystems, on populations, on humans, um, but then also how do societies respond to that? Yeah. Um, you know, how best can populations and you know. Uh, societies adapt, mitigate, um, what are the options, what are the pitfalls of each of the different options. Yeah. Um, and I, mean, I think that, for me, that's, is, I've already learned a huge amount, um, and we're still not even halfway through the process, and actually once it all comes together at the end, I think it's going to be very educational for me. Um, yeah. I don't know whether it'll be anything I'll necessarily follow up on scientifically myself, um, but I think... Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. Yeah. Option A, stick your head in the sand. Problem solved. <laughs> Just... Option A, stick your head in the sand. Um, you know, and, and, I say that with a little bit of frustration, I'll be honest, I do. But, you know, yeah, I yeah. 
But I mean, yeah. it is an option that you have to consider. It is in order actually. to rule it out. I mean, option one on any decision tree is do nothing. Do nothing. Yeah, um, that's true. Now, I think most people will accept that do nothing is not the best option. Seems risky. Seems risky. Um, yeah. You know, you are kind of storing up problems for the future if you choose that option. Yeah. And those problems will probably come back and yeah. bite you in the backside. It's a future of these problems. It's, you know, well, <laughs> forget that guy. No. Forget that guy. I mean... <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. But The worst of it... You, I don't need to explain this. You know, the worst of it probably won't happen when you or I are around, but yeah. our kids maybe, or grandkids maybe. If we have grandkids one day, and we don't want to sort up problems for them that we can avoid. No. Uh, yeah, no, you can imagine, you know, a few generations, them looking back and going, what? <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you knew this was yeah. coming down the pipe. And I'm not trying to get too heavy or too, you know, like, I mean, th- this can be a more difficult part of the conversation, but I think it's pretty fair to say, yeah, we don't want folks in a couple of generations looking back and going, yeah, you knew, you knew what was happening. Come on. And you didn't, and you were just like, ah. Maybe yeah. it's, it, it'll be fine. You, you did nothing. Um, <laughs> That's difficult. We don't want that. I don't, we, I don't want that. Don't we know. just don't want it on our consciences. <laughs> I mean, just knowing that there was a problem, and it's a hard problem, but it's not insoluble. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. And I think, you know, in saying that, I mean, you and I are not, we're not advocating like a specific line of action. We're just kind of saying, probably we should do something, and, you know, we should yeah. take a look at that, you know. Well... You know, there's a whole long list of things that can be advocated for. Um, you know, we don't need to go through them here. Yeah, um, yeah. But it is the case that, you know, doing nothing is not the best choice. Probably not the best, um, no. Probably not the best choice. <laughs> um, so then it becomes a case of, well, which of those actions that you can take yeah. are the ones you really need to put the effort into. So to kind of switch gears a little bit, um, we talked about writing a little bit. Writing a proposal is different than writing a paper. So how do you handle that process of writing a proposal, like a research proposal for funding and coming up with the, the ideas? And you know, the, the, I think that involves a certain level of awareness of what the big scientific picture looks like right now. Where are the missing pieces? What are some contributions that you, know, that, that you could make to fill in the gaps? Yeah. How do you approach all that? Um... I hate writing proposals. I've never enjoyed it. Mm. <laughs> it's not like writing papers, which I actually do enjoy, but writing proposals, um, I don't know why. I think it's because most proposals don't get funded. Yeah. Um, so I you think... know this is probably going into my cryogenic freezer of ideas. Yeah. 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 As opposed to actually exactly. getting used. Um, well, I think, you know, I think the ideas, I mean, most scientists got endless numbers of ideas bubbling away and the question is which ones do they pull out and write a proposal about on the specific day that they're going to do it or week that they're going to do it Um, and that's where things come in like knowing (coughs) knowing what's topical knowing what's important now what you can build on now um, becomes important Um, and that's part of being part of a community Um, I tend to work when I'm writing proposals, I tend to work better writing them with other people. I, you know, I wouldn't just sit down and write a proposal by myself. Yeah. Um, so engaging with people and getting the ideas <clears throat> for what we're trying to do, first of all, and then how we're going to, you know, structuring it, how we're going to go about it, yeah. um, get the framework for the proposal correct to begin with. Yeah. 
and then going and writing the details in because you can finesse the details to your heart's content but you've got to get that framework of what you're trying to achieve correct first of all yeah um, I mean the biggest proposal I ever wrote was the orchestral one which yeah. was yeah that ate like a year of your life I think didn't it, it well it was more of, than you know, a year more than a year um, but it wasn't a solo effort right by any right. means I yeah. mean we had meetings in advance of all the interested parties um and to clarify exactly what it is that we wanted to do and how we were going to yeah. do it. And then putting everything in place. Um, yeah, there were a lot of other people who contributed. Elaine McDonough at NOC did an awful lot of work for it, for yeah. example. And there were many others too. Yeah, Elaine, I think she's someone who, she's said to me before that she really enjoys that process of you know, connecting different elements of the community and managing projects and getting proposals together. And yeah. that she's that seems to be part of her constitution that she likes driving that sort of... We really we desperately need folks <laughs> like that we in, need the, in the community. Like yeah, we need sure. people like that. There's that, and I love this this community element pops up over and over again. You know, in these conversations, that um, science isn't like we said earlier. It's not just individual people. It's about the interactions. It's about you know the we've got uh, people who are driving the scientific process forward. People who are holding communities together. Um, and I guess one of the questions that that brings to to mind is like. Um, are there things that we could do? You know, there are certainly people sitting just outside of the oceanographic community who would probably really like to be involved and probably who would really like to make contributions. But maybe for whatever reason, uh, they're not spatially well-connected to us. You know, They don't live next to a big oceanographic institute or maybe they don't know anybody working in there. And um, I guess one of the things I like to think about is are we doing enough to try to be to try to be inclusive and to try to you know uh, to to invite people in who maybe are on the periphery but they're they're on the periphery only because of like where they live and the people mm-hmm. they happen to know but maybe they're really passionate about it and interested in it and want to get some want to try to find some pathway into the community mm-hmm. um, I don't know is that you have any thoughts on that or well I think I mean the more we can do that the better I'm sure there's you know, any number of you know clever talented people out there that could make a real contribution to oceanography, but for various reasons, um, they might not be. They might not even heard of it. I mean, yeah, I suspect if yeah. you stopped a person in the street and said, "What is oceanography?" Most of them would guess what it is, but they might not have come across the word before you mentioned it to them. And they probably hear marine biologist is what I found. That's what yeah, the people they do. Yeah, yeah, they do. I mean, I think physicists like us, <laughs> we're behind the curve. Um, you know, marine biologists, everyone's heard of Jacques Cousteau, and yeah. you know. And people watch Blue Planet, um, and they love it, and rightly so. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, but physical oceanography doesn't have the same profile. No, and I, I'm I'm certainly biased, but I, I really would have liked to have seen just one episode. It doesn't have to be the whole series, but it would be cool to have one Blue Planet that's on, just on like here's the global circulation and here's how it works. Mm. And by the way, have you heard of convection? Yeah, you can get water that's basically the same for two kilometers down. You know, amazing stuff. You could have one episode about stuff like that. <laughs> well, you <laughs> could. You could. But I think... And, and we would enjoy it. You know, you and I, we would yeah. love it. But I think, you know, the general public, they're probably more gripped by whales. Um, it's fair enough. Ultra, you know, the real... Because the Blue Planet really... The thing that blows everybody away, okay, there's David Attenborough, and, you know, he's everyone's hero, which is fantastic. Um, but it's the footage, 
you know it's yeah, the wildlife yeah, footage true. that blows everyone away and so you need cool animations of the things we're talking about that would cool be cool animations you know. but I, and but we are always you know i guess fighting uphill because you know physical oceanography is not as visual as marine biology yeah yeah um but it's more conceptual it's okay more conceptual. how about 20 minutes of an episode we could probably cover i think we can elbow our way into 20, yeah. 20 minutes of an yeah. episode maybe. well maybe like, just you know, five minutes of every episode yeah there you um go. where they talk about you know the marine biology the ecosystem all the things that you know undoubtedly matter but then just have five minutes of every episode as to well why is it why does it work the way it does you know mm. what are the parts of the ocean system yeah um leads to this being the way it is you know so uh, we can say hey we exist we yeah. we do stuff physical yeah. oceanography I mean, is a the, thing in fairness they put some in there but um you know we are we are the minor partner yeah. in, in that sort of relationship i think certainly for tv stuff that ends up on tv certainly <laughs> the stuff that ends up on tv yeah yeah um but yeah oh but about that um you know community element i think that's an important part of the whole open source Push, right is that that's part of the idea is to try to lower some of those barriers that keep people from participating in science that could make good contributions in science but don't have thousands of dollars for a journal subscription or a MATLAB license or you know yeah. to um, and I, I'm excited about that I'm excited about that idea of lowering you know some of those barriers and getting more voices involved um, and I think I guess it can be a little intimidating because you know you you've, we we build these places for ourselves where we're like well I'm I know what where I am and I'm making a contribution, and obviously there's some level of protectiveness about that of like well I wanna I wanna keep doing that I wanna keep making my you know mm-hmm. my contribution, but I think maybe following that kind of fearful impulse is probably not the right way to go. We probably want to be, you know, more open and more inclusive and more, yeah, let's get everybody in here. You know, if you want to spend your afternoons fussing with, uh, you know, boundary conditions and stream functions and <laughs> different, you know, different density surfaces on different stream functions, then we'll have you come on, you know, be, right. be a part of this. That's right. You can <laughs> you come know? and be strange in our building yeah. if you want. Come, um, be, come be a nerd. <laughs> yeah, come be a nerd with us. Yeah, that's uh, right. I agree. And I think, you know, there's, there's it's, it's, it's a human response to try and be a little bit protective about what you have if, you know, you're worried that someone else might <coughs> do it the same or do it slightly better and you yeah. end up losing out a little bit. Um, but in reality, well, there's, I guess there's two different aspects to it. One is that, you know, we don't do science for ourselves at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, we do science... Yeah, we do because we find it interesting. But at the end of the day, someone's paying for it, um, and they, you know, they benefit from it being as open as possible. Right. Um, yeah. And the other factor that I think is, you know, we're actually getting vast amounts of data these days. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the autonomous revolution in oceanography. I think we're still somewhere near the start of it, but already the you know the amount of data we get is so much more. Yeah, orders of magnitude more than we've ever had before, and it's going yeah. up all the time. And it's the same with modeling as well. Um, you look at the Earth system models, how they produce terabytes of output. Um, and the challenge is how do you analyze it? Um, it's not producing more, it's what do you do with it? Yeah. Uh, so I think there's, you know, of course we need more and we need to do it smarter, but the real challenge is it's getting enough brain power to 
you know, wring the really high quality science out of all of this. Um, and it's, that really benefits from you know, open source and making things as available as possible so that other people can contribute. And I think it actually benefits the individual scientists at the end of the day. The, the chance of an individual scientist getting scooped on a paper, you know, it's, it's not negligible, but it's really, really small. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the benefits from drawing other people in who will be collaborators and supportive of you and work with you, really high. Yeah, um, that's right. It's so about making that community bigger and healthier and more vibrant and more active. Exactly. And, you know, yeah. It's exactly that. And the more we can do that, the better you know, for everybody, not just the people you draw in, but for the people already working in the field. Um, yeah. And yeah, absolutely. The more we can do that, it's better for us, it's better for the science, it's better for the people who fund the science. So. Yeah, definitely. Do we want to do end with a quick, I only have one question actually, but I thought if you could give a really short answer and we don't have to stop if you want to keep talking, but yeah. if you, if somebody said, Oh, what's, what's a great lesson you've learned about science just in general? could be anything about it if you had do you have like a really short you know uh, I think the biggest moral lesson I've learned is be generous Ooh, yeah uh, that's the next one I think I think when you start out in science you want to make a name for yourself you want to prove to other people that you're clever and that comes from doing good science and publishing it um, but I think as you move through your career the pride that you get comes more and more from helping other people yes. achieve their potential yeah. for them to produce good science. I think that the more generous you can be when helping those people, the better. Because um, that, that makes you feel good as well. Yeah, and it, it's also good for the community. I mean, if, if more people are approaching science with that sort of spirit of let me try to help people and lift people up and build people up, if everybody's kind of doing that then that's good for everybody and that's good for the scientific community and ultimately you will get better work you know as a result absolutely you'll certainly get better results than if everybody's fighting for their you know scraps and everybody's you know, being secretive and protective and um you know I, I i've got a my perspective so far has been that on the whole i think our community is reasonably healthy like i think we i, I certainly i've kind of experienced some other scientific fields to an extent and have been in other fields and I, uh, at least for a short time that not every community is as supportive and collaborative as ours there certainly are communities where um, people are a bit more vicious and protective and you know this is mine stay away mm. um, and they uh, it's certainly a much less pleasant environment to work in um, I think we have this notion that you know competition always produces really good results and it it's not that that's useless i mean that can be an important part of the story right so um i guess what i'm what i'm trying to resolve now is like i i'm totally on board with everything you said and everything i was saying sounds good to me and there's this notion out there of you know of competition which is kind of the opposite of what we were just talking about how do you balance those two things? I don't really know the openness and the competitiveness. Cause I guess at the end of the day, there is like a finite amount of, you know, mm. of, of money to drive the science forward and things. Um, so there, there's, that's another knob, another balance that has to be delicately yeah. struck somehow. I think, I think the, the competition is it, partly depends what sort of funding climate you're in. If you're in a time of declining budgets, then, yeah, there's a human tendency to you know, take on a bit of a 
bunker mentality mm. and fight for what you've got against people. Yeah, and that's it. Sometimes it's um, sometimes it's understandable, but I think it's always regrettable when mm. it happens. Yeah. I think there has to be a level of competition, but it should be the community competing with itself to generate the best ideas. Um, mm. So I don't think it should be competition of institute against institute or person yeah. against person. Um, in an ideal scenario, we'd have a you know a really strong, vibrant community. And I think in a large part we do. Um, but then they need to pull out ideas collectively, um, and the best ones of those get funded hmm. um, for science, because you know the best science. There's always more ideas than there is money to pay for them. Yeah. So yeah. you have to pay for the best ones. Um, but what it shouldn't be is people fighting against each other or institutes fighting against each other to develop those. It should be as as joined up as it possibly can. That makes me wonder if we should allow people to be on multiple proposals at a time, you know, in that spirit of like, well, here are a different number of different things that we are thinking about trying, you know, mm. as a as a larger community. And then, like you said, there's a review process and a sorting process that kind of um, converges on you know one or two of those options. Yeah. But if you if the if the funding still kind of spread out, I don't know. But I'm not. I don't want to use the word evenly because I don't quite know what I mean. You probably know what I'm trying to get to is like. That way, it is more about the competition of ideas and proposals as opposed to people and institutes against each other. Yeah. But. I don't want to get in the realm of trying to figure out a specific solution to the problem because that's a much bigger conversation and that's uh we're probably you and i probably aren't going to solve it in this room <laughs> in, well it'd be great minutes, if we did know. i mean we could <laughs> you know we could announce to the world that we've solved all the problems with, um <laughs> with this one specific niche <laughs> <this> one. <laughs> yeah. yeah well how do you feel do you want to talk about anything else or um i feel good feel good um, yeah is that all right yeah Cool. Yeah. Well, you're an excellent interviewer. Then. Oh, thank yeah. you. Oh. If oceanography doesn't work out for you for whatever reason, <laughs> then you know you could become <laughs> a TV interviewer or something like that. I, I, you know, the thing that um, I, I worry about a little bit. So I don't know if I'd like the TV thing because I almost feel like there's an expectation to like, well, now you must talk a certain way, and people are expecting a certain tone and a certain like, you know, mm. no, you have to have a kind of inflection. <laughs> it's like, but I, I can't, I can't do all that. I just have to. I'm fine if I can talk like like me. Yeah. Then I'm. I actually really like doing this sort of this kind of podcast thing. I enjoy it. But maybe you could if, be like a late night chat show host on radio for you know, three in the morning till five in the morning for science, something yeah. like that. Not one of the crazy uh, ones where all sorts of random people ring in, but you have you know, a sign that you could... So can I call up a bunch of oceanographers at three in the morning to get their thoughts on, like, mm. I can call you at three in the morning. Mm. Mike, what do you let think? Me, let me think about that one. I'm like... <laughs> hey, you, you up? What do you, are you awake? Yeah. What do you think about... What do you think about sticking two sensors in the seal's head at once instead of just one? Because then we'll have twice the data, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you'd hear an awful lot of you'd hear an awful lot of a ringtone, wouldn't you? Yeah. As the phone was uh, dropped back down. And were, here I have Mike Meredith's ringtone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, this is fun. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for doing this. Oh, I appreciate pleasure. it. Yeah, thanks, Mike. There you have it. My conversation with Mike Meredith. So Mike Meredith, uh, you can find him on Twitter at Meredith underscore M-M-M, triple M, three M's. Um, 
and uh, yeah, there's a story behind that, but I forget exactly what it is, why uh, there are three M's there. So again, it might be uh, late April, kind of mid to late April before I can release another episode. So uh, when you don't see one in a couple of weeks, it's just because we've gone on hiatus for the Easter holiday. Uh, I might try to whip up something from the Cambridge Science Festival, but um, uh Maybe not. Maybe not. I'm not too optimistic that I can pull something out of that, like I said during the intro. So uh, don't don't wait out on that. Uh, yeah, but I have a couple more guests scheduled for April, so as soon as we get back into the swing of things and out of the UK Easter break time, I should be able to establish this as a regular thing again about every two weeks. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Well, not not literally. won't see you next time hear me next time. I don't know how to end these. That's all right.